Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Bernadette Brennan in conversation with Ramona Caval. Bernadette Brennan is a critic and researcher of contemporary Australian writing. Her most recent award-winning work, A Writing Life, Helen Garner and Her Work, offered a fascinating literary portrait, but now she has turned her gaze to Gillian Mears. This new biography, Leaping into Waterfalls, explores the rich, tumultuous life of Gillian Mears, one of Australia's most significant writers of the last 40 years. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. My name is Christine Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings and I am delighted to be able to welcome you here to this Zoom platform. I'm delighted to welcome you here on behalf of Alan and Unwin and Readings. But before we get going, let us all take a little moment to reflect that wherever we are in Australia, wherever we're listening to, whatever couch we're on or bed we're on, that we're living here on land that's not ours, on land that's owned by the First Nations people. I've become a, a little fatigued in some ways of doing these grand acknowledgements of country and saying the sort of the pro forma that's been given out by everyone because I don't think it's enough. I don't think it's enough that I just give my respects to the Kulin Nation and to their elders, past, present and emerging. I think that as readers we should all take this opportunity to acknowledge that the First Nations people have gifted us with stories and song lines that we can make sense of the country that we live in. So rather than just giving my respects, I think that on behalf of all of you, I'd like to also give my gratitude to those First Nations people that have given us the words and the pictures and the stories so that we can make sense of the country, of the mountains and of the rivers and of this beautiful land that we live in. At the moment, I am speaking from the Kulin Nation and it's a terrific treat to live somewhere that's so beautiful. I'd like to now introduce you to someone who has been making stories her lifetime's work. And, of course, I'm speaking about the journalist, the writer, the broadcaster, Ramona Caval. It's such a treat to have you here with us tonight, Ramona. Her last book, A Letter to Layla, was such a heartfelt love letter to her granddaughter that just even saying the title brings a tear to my eye. Ramona, I'm delighted to welcome you to this Alan and Unwin and Readings Zoom platform so that you can speak to your friend, to your comrade, if you like, the one and only Bernadette Brennan. Over to you. Well, thank you very, very much, Christine. And I'm really delighted to be here talking about Leaping into Waterfalls, the enigmatic Julian Mears. And, um, well, you know, I was so excited to be talking to Bernadette because Julian Mears was a singular person And it takes, I think, a singular writer, a singular biographer, a singular literary critic to understand her work and to understand the person, uh, the enigmatic person that was Gillian. Bernadette has written about the work of Helen Garner, Brian Castro. She's a judge of the Miles Franklin Award. She understands the Australian literary landscape. I'm really pleased that she has written this book. It's a fantastic book. 
it's the sort of job that I could never do in a million years. I could never devote myself. Now, it's true to in the way that you have, the precision that you've you've shown, the um, beautiful writing, the understanding of another human being, under very difficult circumstances, I think, too. But I'll get to that. But first, Bernadette, tell me, for those who haven't read Gillian's work, how do you kind of um, locate her in the, in the literary landscape? Where does she belong? Okay. Well, firstly, can I just say hello here from Bidjigal and Gadigal country, and I too acknowledge the elders past and present upon whose land I'm now sitting, also beautiful land and a, a land of great stories, which Gillian understood very deeply. Uh, and, and thank you, Christine, for that welcome, and for you, Ramona, and Wow, if anyone could ever talk about stories, as a letter to Layla will tell us, and the humanity of how important stories are, it would be you. Where does Gillian fit? So Gillian is born in 64, and she starts publishing about 20 years later. So she's publishing the early 80s, and she's that generation behind Garner and Grenville. She's, She's a bit further, you know, one and a half generations, if you like, after Thea Astley. So she's part of that um, group of writers. There's there's a lot of them and they're still publishing. There's still a lot of them out there who are writing and publishing. But she she comes along at a time with the 80s when you've actually got um, female publishers, you've got McPhee Gribble, you've got women's voices rising through Australian writing. So in a sense, she sort of slips into it very easily. She's had these forebears or these mothers, if you like, these literary mothers who have broken the ice. And she says that, you know, Garner and Farmer and um, Grenville, they helped me understand that I could write about the world of women and girls and country towns and, and lives, small lives, supposedly about big things. So that's sort of where she fits in. And very early on, she starts to really make her name, doesn't she? I mean, she gets published very quickly, doesn't she? It's an extraordinary publishing story. So she goes to UTS, uh, she does the creative writing and journalism um, degree, and by the last day of her third-year degree, she's already got Bruce Pascoe saying, yes, I'm going to publish The Midnight Shift in Australian Short Stories. She's also sent that story off to Carol Ferrier at Hecate, and so Carol Ferry has also said, yeah, sure, I'm going to publish this as well. We jump from, you know, one story, Bruce Pascoe says to her, listen, I don't suppose you've got anything else, and says, I think I'm begging you, Gillian. I mean, what kind of writer these days could understand that kind of I'm begging you? Um, On the strength of one story, we'll publish your collection. Darcy Randall then writes to her from UQP and said, listen, I read The Midnight Shift. Any chance we could publish a collection? So, I still call her a kid at that point. She's, you know, she's 20, 21, and she's saying, yeah, well, you know, everybody wants to publish my stories. And from there they do, except for uh, Fine Flower, which was her second collection, which she sent to Pasco. He said a few years later after Ryder Cock Wars, so she sent it to him at the end of the 1980s, and he says, yeah, look, it's good, but it's not as good as Ryder Cock Horse, and actually you should turn it into a novel. And she's a bit peeved about this, you know, excuse me, you know, nobody tells me what to do. And then she sends it to McPhee Gribble and they say, well, look, yeah, look, it's good and we'd like to see your future work, but no, we're not going to publish this one. So she sends it off to UQP and, of course, with minor editing they publish it. And then it goes on, of course, to win the prizes, wins the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, as you do. I want to talk about the archive because it kind of fits in here now. At some point she's thinking, 
I'm the kind of writer that people will want to know quite a lot about. And I will now collect everything that I have ever thought about or written or, you know, drafts or diaries or, I mean, you'll tell me what's in the archive and collect it and sort of because I'm important enough to collect everything. I mean, I've heard of blokes doing this um, (laughs) very early on with no real reason to, but for her generation to, to, to start to do that, I thought that was quite interesting and kind of singular. What do you think? Yeah, singular is a word. I think it's um, multifaceted. I think she had this obsession about collecting everything about her life from her earliest years. And indeed, in the archive, she's got her birthday cards from when she was five and then school reports from, you know, grade two and three and four and these sorts of things. So I think she always had this idea that she was trying to cling on to childhood. She was trying to understand herself and her family and her childhood. And she's, she just had this manic obsession about collecting everything that she touched almost and everything that she wrote and would pour over it again and again and again to find some kind of understanding of herself. Was she looking for stories? I mean, was she looking of stories she could write or ways that she could enter into it? So maybe I was wrong and, and it wasn't about sort of a narcissism. Maybe it was something about oh, no, hanging on to the origin of some future book. I think in the early days and, you know, her teenage years, I think it was more just about holding everything close and somehow by keeping, she was was very keen on control and somehow by keeping those narratives, keeping those letters, keeping those school reports or whatever, she had a sense of self and a control over her life. And she was always a diarist and a letter a big letter writer. When her sisters um, first left home to go and study, uh, she would write to them a couple of times a week. So she would collect all of those letters as well. So later on, she asked for them back. I think at this point, maybe they kept them as well. They must have because she has all of them that they wrote back to her. So certainly later on, she used to send them stamped self-addressed envelopes at the end of each year saying, you know, this is very important for the historical record. So I'd like you to send these back. In terms of the archive and putting that together, I think there is something very singular about that. And I think there probably was a very contradictory impulse. On one hand, I am this good and someone will come along and they will write my biography and I will be the great writer in that, you know, male way really, you know, with a capital G and capital W. Uh, At the same time as there was this intense fragility and sense of, shyness and timidity and I I don't know who I am or what's going to happen in my life. So they both just ran along, I was going to say parallel, but then I just think they're so totally intermeshed in who she was, a sense of absolute destiny and also a sense of I'm not really anybody. Well, let's, let's get back to the archive in a sec, but just paint a picture of her family and where they lived and because that's important to her writing. And So her parents are Peter and Sheila, and Sheila has uh, come from, she was raised in London, and she's caught a boat to South Africa, to Cape Town she's come into, and she's very quickly met Peter, who was an only child, uh, raised in Rhodesia and Zululand, as it was was then called. Uh, They've got married and they've uh, had Yvonne, and when Yvonne's nearly two months old, they've migrated from Rhodesia to Ganelabar outside of Lismore. Within five years, they've had four girls. So we've got this very tight-knit 
migrant family, they called themselves, living in this idyllic rural landscape um, away from any kind of family. And in each case, Peter and Sheila had very, very troubled relationships with their parents, with their mothers, I'm sorry. Uh, and so there was a sense of closeness and that Peter and Sheila wanted a large family and they wanted to give them all the love and security that they sensed they didn't get themselves through their lives. And that was their childhood. So it was an intensely close, beautiful country childhood. Sheila was um, a woman of the world in a sense. She loved the opera halls of and the music halls of London. She was a great reader. So she used to sing all the time. She had a record player. She introduced them to classical music. She read them stories. She said, books are your best friend. She was a woman who also had a strong sense of her own sensual and sexual desires and desirability, and they were central to her understanding of herself. And when the kids were little, I think she was very happy being a mother and being very busy with these children. When Gillian's um, then turning nine, they moved to Grafton and the girls start to get horses and they start to move away from their mother. They, Gillian says, you know, we reach puberty, we start being unkempt and horses take over our life and our mother's disappointed. I think realistically it wasn't necessarily that. I think that was just a very difficult, dark time in Sheila's life and she sought, you know, um, comfort from having affairs with different people in Grafton. She was very angry. She used to leave home often. So Gillian grew up a very sensitive kid but a kid that had this sense that my mother was um, brilliant and beautiful and I'm obsessed with her, but she's also extremely powerful. She's very angry. She's very frustrated and she often leaves. So all of that kind of emotion fed into this teenage kid. And these girls, you see pictures of them on horses. They're young girl horses with their long legs and their leanness and their beautiful faces. What, what was the relationship between them like, the four girls? Yvonne was the eldest and uh, Gillian was the third. Gillian was in awe of Yvonne all her life, certainly till her young adult life. She was in awe of Yvonne. So she would do anything that Yvonne would do. And Yvonne was fearless, particularly when it came to horses. So Gillian was her riding mate and she would go out galloping across ditches and jumping fences and absolutely terrified, but also loving the risk of it. So there was Yvonne, then Karen, then Gillian and Sonia. Perhaps the best way of describing them is the way Gillian described them in an early essay uh, where she said, I keep trying to write about my sisters, but they don't ring true because there really is only us. And she says, take the first initial of my sister's names and spell them backwards and you have Sky. And that was actually what it was. These girls were her world. Her parents were her world as well, but these sisters were everything. But rivalries, rivalries about writing, about whose stories. The rivalries became incredibly destructive uh, in the mid-90s when Yvonne, who had trained as a nurse and had a couple of kids and was very busy, wrote a few stories and Gillian gave her lots of advice on those stories and helped her. Gillian, by this age, had won the Vogel Award for the Mint Lawn in 1990. She's then published The Grass Sister in 1995. And in the meantime, she's published Ride a Cock Horse and she's published Fine Flower and by that stage, probably dozens of stories. She's highly awarded. She's won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize twice. Yvonne has written a novel for the Vogel Award and called it uh, Grass Angels. And it's about 
some sisters who are jumping their horses, high jumping. Gillian has a number of titles for her grass sister story and then right at the end she turns it into the grass sister and Yvonne feels a bit betrayed. That, as you would. As you would. And she also says, you've taken my idea, if you like. And this kind of percolates along this rivalry for many, many years and is compounded by other things which go on in the family. The problem being that when Gillian then publishes Foles Bread, which takes her more than 10 years to write and is, is a book that only she could have written, again, Yvonne sort of thinks, well, hang on, that was my topic. My topic was high jumping and so now you've gone and taken it. So Gillian explained it as we're connected. We're connected almost at the thigh and uh, our creative sap is the same and we've grown up in the same with the same stories, with the horseman's stories. This is all part of my life. You introduced me to the wild ride and I couldn't write anything else. So that's that was not an easy relationship to negotiate for either of them. But they loved each other deeply and they were still working together, raising horses, you know, when Gillian died. So, so Gillian dies at, at 51. Um, Gillian has MS, which is, this is something that her grandfather had died of too. So she must have known it's in the family. It's a story about... A sad story about a terrific writer who died too young. When you went into the archive, just describe how much there was and tell me if you were surprised. (laughs) Surprised. I was surprised. I had been told there was a few scrapbooks in the State Library, so I looked up their catalogue and the catalogue did say papers of Gillian Mears and there seemed to be, oh, maybe four or five collections because the catalogue itself was going through restructuring at the time. So what I saw was, oh, well, this looks good. This looks like a manageable amount here. I made an appointment with the archivists to go and meet to see about what conditions there were for access to the archive because there was one or two of them that had something like um, conditions uh, applied for research or something. And, of course, when I go in there, they say to me, oh, look, it's the second only in size to the Fairfax archive. This is the largest literary archive we have. And I'm still thinking, oh, this is great. This is fantastic. I'm going to have so much to work with. And then I discover the size of the archive, 154 boxes, you know, 27 metres. And in it is, as you said, just about everything Gillian's ever collected or touched, including paintings of her nieces and nephews who you know three-year-olds who have done those great paintings they're all in there as well as all the family photo albums as well as tens of thousands of pages of diaries and thousands of letters trees plants dingo fur birds feathers you name it it's it's in that archive and six thousand photographs and negatives and then hours of recordings because she went through a phase where she loved making tape recordings for her friends and they would make tape recordings for her. So hours and hours of these recordings as well. Was it organised in any way or was it all just a big jumble? Oh, no, it was it was organised. Some bits were, were jumbled, but it was fairly organised because obviously the archivists had got it in in eight different occasions and so they themselves had sort of said, well, these are the papers from, you know, 1960s to this. But then, then there'd be someone to say, you know, these are the papers from 1948 or something, Gillian's born in 64, to 2016, and you think, okay, what have we got in here? But, of course, she'd go and pinch all sorts of other bits of family history and put that in. So, you know, there was those surprises. Um, 
and near the end there was um she had used a lot of voice recognition for a long time and so some of the final boxes had massive massive documents of text messages from her phone now nobody wants to read 4,000 pages of text messages, you know, are you coming? I'm five minutes late. I'll be at the gate at 10 minutes. The taxi's late. Did you read them all? By then, fortunately, they had little um, signatures next to them of who was sending the text. So by then I knew the story well enough to know who was important. So I skimmed them all, but some leapt out at me and some just made me get very frustrated and want to run away. (laughs) But she had little notes to her future biographer, didn't she? She did. Now, that that one I find really fascinating, and I'm not sure even now how I feel about that, but I, in one sense I was thrilled to receive them, so, so biographer. So you'd be reading and you might be spending three weeks there and you haven't had one yet, and, and then suddenly it's so scholar of the future, you know, this is what I'm telling you because we've jumped across a few years, and it really brings you back to yourself and think, whoa, she's still very much aware of me or whoever this biographer's eyes are, and she's scripting this. So how do you know you've written the book that you wanted to write and not the one that Gillian wanted you to write? (laughs) Well, it's an interesting question. Um, Early on I got a bit worried and I thought uh, there's so much material here from Gillian's diaries that this could possibly swamp me and this could actually play me in a way that I'm going to tell this story. Maria Chumarkin says uh, a biographer has, it's a, it's a human right of a subject to be represented in their own biography. And so that if you have access to their voice and their diaries, etc., you you should use them. And I agree with that to an extent. But the interesting part is when you know that some of those diaries are fabricated and I found myself once in the archive and it was absolutely not true and there was other documentation around that moment to tell me it was not true and that was wonderful because it confirmed for me that I need to be very careful here. So so what was fabricated? What was not true? It was a very small point when I I only met Julian the once and it was to hand over the ALS gold medal for Foles Bread and she had just come to Sydney and so we had made arrangements to meet for coffee and I would hand her over the gold medal. And so we did meet for coffee and we had two coffees and we had a muffin each and we sat for three and a half hours at a Hunter's Hill Cafe. And I had no idea at this stage about Gillian's life, really. I had read some of her work. What I didn't realise was that she'd spent 20 years by that stage being obsessed with caffeine and sugar. And she had been trying to give them up and she'd gone through massive detox programs and all the rest of it. Well, it I hadn't done any of that. So I'm sitting here meeting her at a coffee shop saying, hey, well, we get a second coffee. And of course, we had a muffin each. So in the archive, it's fascinating because there's a big piece of paper upon which she has taped in the the gold medal with a note next to it saying, I wish I had had my two friends caffeine and sugar when I received this. And it's just a weird kind of thing to, to discover that moment. And you think, okay, that's really instructive. How can that possibly change how you approach the archive and what you believe and what you don't and that would just drive me mad I think. (laughs) I had a friend who said to me yes this would send me insane but I'm saying it's a great story. There was enough material there to cross-reference, to check, to know what happened and I also got to talk to 65 people so I spoke to Gillian's peers and friends and lovers and families and therapists and so I got lots of stories from different angles The other invaluable thing was uh, the letters so that 
people would write to Gillian and they were in there. Gillian would write to them and she didn't keep copies of all of her letters, but she kept a lot of copies. So I could check against the diary, can check against multiple entries into the diary, can check against the interviews and then put them against the letters as well. And then also the thinly veiled autobiographical writing that she did, you would then turn to the texts and say, oh, that's interesting, that's in there. So I think I told enough of a story and I've been really gratified since publishing it to get some responses from people who don't know me and are not a part of the literary world. And one the other day was a woman who grew up with Gillian and her family uh, from Grafton and she sent me this uh, email saying she'd just finished the book and my, my stomach kind of clenched because I thought, oh, dear, do I read on? This could be the moment that I got this so wrong. And she sent me a beautiful, generous email telling me how right I had got it. And those sorts of moments you think, phew, phew, because you you have a responsibility not to mess this up. You need to get this right. So, I mean, Gillian wasn't too worried about boundaries. Um, I think as, <laughs> as you've already explained really about the relationships between her sister. But what about sort of other people's boundaries? Um, how was it to negotiate you know, with the people who had been her lovers or her friends or her ex-friends or her or any other relationship, were some of them surprised that they were going to be, you know, exposed in some way? Were some of them upset? Who was going to tell you what you couldn't write and what you could write? Um, tell me about that minefield. Minefield is the word. Gillian has gone, but I think all of her lovers are still here, her friends, her family. So there's a lot of people involved here whose lives and very intimate lives uh, risked being exposed in a damaging way. And interestingly, there's, there's all sorts of different groups here. So firstly, her father was incredibly generous with his time and memories and nothing was too much trouble. Each of her sisters shared huge amounts with me. But I think quite rightly, it took a while. They Sometimes I was drip fed a little bit. You know, I heard a bit a year later, or now that you've gone through the archive, I'd like to talk to you again. And now I'll tell you about this. So that was fine. Most of her lovers, her ex-lovers, were incredibly anxious and sleepless nights and were worried before I arrived. Some put me off for a long time. And then, of course, when I talked to them, they'll say, oh, this is great. And, yes, please come back. And, look, would you like the letters that she's written to me? And here's six kilograms of letters from Gillian, love letters, this sort of thing. Or here's my diaries from that time. This is what I was keeping in my diary when this was happening to Gillian. So it was a minefield, but I kind of like that. It's just understanding human nature. And one of the beauties, if there's anyone out there listening who wants to write a biography of someone, one of the beauties of biography I've found is the, the people you meet otherwise. So, you know, Ramona, I met you really through this biography. I, I emailed you, I rang you up, I, I got to meet you in Melbourne. You meet all sorts of people that you would never otherwise have met uh, and it's wonderful and, and everyone has an interesting life and then you meet all these other people who have got equally interesting lives that all touch on other things. So, it was a minefield, but it's I, for me, that's the joy of it. It's human nature and it's trying to meet and understand other people. 
did they all give you the same kind of story about what kind of a person she was, uh, or did you did you get different facets of her, or was was you know was the story pretty straightforward? I actually got the same story, of course, with different variations from each person. I got the same story from each of her lovers, for instance. It was about her complexity, but also her dangerous side, um, the intensity of their relationship with her. Um, she has some friends who swear black and blue to her absolute generosity, open-heartedness, beauty, and everybody would say that, I think. Some people would come down more heavily on, I think maybe she was a bit manipulative, but I think she might have um, used me a bit. Um, But, you know, even there, we all have our different opinions, don't we, of our friendship with somebody else. And then you think at different times of Gillian's life, she was well and she could be more generous and open and loving and, and available in later times when she was living with such a severe disability, the sheer energy of someone dropping in unannounced or the sheer energy it would take if someone promised to come at 10 o'clock and they didn't get there till 11 would throw her whole body out for days mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. and she would be furious, she'd be angry. She, she, had a, she had a very strong core of anger, as did her mother, and that anger was usually kept in check, but sometimes she would she would let fly. Um, and most of her friends tolerated that. She did alienate some people, some of her old school friends, for instance. She would, in her honest way, just tell them straight out what she thought of their lives or they weren't achieving what they should be achieving or they weren't writing as much as they should be writing, quite insultingly. And occasionally one of them would write back and say, you know, how dare you? And I can't just spend my life writing. I have to go and mop floors and clean someone's house to, to survive. And then years later, Julian said, I just don't understand why that person cut me off. I wrote to them and asked them, would they help fund my trip here? And they said, no, you're nasty, go away. <laughs> so I think she she could rub people up the wrong way. And then she'd just forget about it because she'd think, oh, this this person's a beautiful person and they've been my friend and I don't remember or understand why they'd be angry at me for being honest. So, Well, I mean, I was a great admirer of her writing. When I met her, though, I thought that she was self-destructive. I I mean, I met her, well, she was already sort of doing really weird, crazy, stupid things um, with alternative therapies and putting herself through just mad ventures to go to South America to spend time taking some kind of leaf that was going to make her vomit when she couldn't even walk and she was, you know, going up hills on her knees and arms and just pretending that it was all going to be, you know, solved by some kind of miracle cure. But she must have known she had MS because her grandfather died of it. She knew at that point that she had MS, yes. She didn't accept that she had it for life. So she she just thought, no, I can beat this. Uh, you know, I was actually interested in your book, A Letter to Layla, when you talk about the shamans or the shamanic, you know, influences and people going into the caves and they thought that they could channel a different spirituality or a different kind of being. I thought that's the kind of um, energy she kept on tapping into. And when friends would say to her things like, I'm sorry, Gillian, I don't believe that the Filipino healers drew a rusty nail from your coccyx because it would have shown up on an x-ray she used to say things like well that kind of negative thinking never helped anybody so she had a I think a strong sense of denial yes self-destruction I have no doubt she was very self-destructive she was masochistic um, and yet 
she fought so hard to stay alive and to recover her body. So it's another one of these contradictions. Since 2008, almost every morning she'd say, she'd wake up and write in her diary, I want to die, I want today to die. And yet there she is up the mountain in 2009 doing the most extreme rituals as a way of trying to stay alive. So just these contradictory impulses but the intensity of her uh, desire to try. You know, you've got to admire her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, you wouldn't, yeah, I didn't encourage it. But then, you think, how did she write Bowles Bread? How did she get herself to write that? Tell, tell me about that because that was a, a fantastic. So she starts it in 2002 at a time when she's living out at Nimboida Farm and she's actually dying at the time of endocarditis. She doesn't know that she has it. She's had horrendous um, gastric uh, problems and she's lost 10 kilograms in a week and she's in excruciating pain and she can't walk and all these things are going wrong with her body. Uh, But she started a new novel and she thinks to herself, I have one great novel in me and this is it. So she starts Foles Bread and she she used to write very quickly once she started to write. She would write in large Spirex um, books and by hand and have hardly any editing at all. So she starts this and she writes a skeletal sort of outline of this book by July in 2002, so it's only a few months later. She's a couple of um, chapters short, she thinks. But by that stage she almost dies and she has to be rushed to hospital and she has to undergo heart surgery. When she starts recovering from the heart surgery and the medicine that has actually taken out her vestibular system, she goes back to Foles Bread and very quickly finishes the draft and then she says to Yvonne, who they're now, they've made up after the grass sister, she then says to her, oh, look, I tell you what, since you've got a book about, you know, high jumping, how about we publish our books together? And Yvonne is seriously unimpressed. And Gillian says, look, I'm in a bit of a hurry and I'm going to hop in this van and take myself off into the bush. And so I'll leave my manuscript with you. No pressure, but I'd like to have them to Barbara Mobs by Christmas, please. And Yvonne basically takes the manuscript puts it in a trunk and doesn't touch it. So that's 2003. Gillian takes off in her converted ambulance and has the adventures of her life and it's a really joyous, I think, stage of her life. 2008, she gets to um, Adelaide. She thinks she's going to become a yoga teacher. That falls through. She thinks she's written a fable that's going to be like the little prince and change the world. That doesn't seem to be flying. So she says, okay, I'm going to have to go back to Falls Bread. So that's 2008. Now, she finally finishes it in 2011, but by that stage she has gone to Venezuela. She has completely lost her mobility and is in a wheelchair. She's been in and out of hospital with horrendous bed sores and horrible infections. By the time she's writing the end of Foles Bread and then editing it, she's lying on her side. She can't move. She's got terrible pressure sores and she can move one finger and she's managing to use one finger to change something or to type something different. Now, that kind of determination is something that you say, what a person, what a person. And not only that kind of determination for writing, but that kind of determination for living. At the same time as she's saying, please, please, I want to die. She didn't want to die. She just wanted to be relieved of this terrible pain. And she wrote that book and that book's so full of energy and light and darkness and tragedy and death but so full of spirit and life and to write it when you're in such extremis, wow. Her life wasn't easy. I mean, she was always sort of scrimping, wasn't she? She 
she didn't have a lot of money ever, even after all the publishing success she'd had in terms of getting things in print. Yes, and she won a lot of awards. She was she won a lot of grants from the Australia Council. She was extremely fortunate as a writer. And yet she never worked, she never wanted to work. So she only did a couple of months of a few days a week early on. And then she worked at the Environment Centre, but that was for free for a short time. I think she got paid $300 a week, um, but otherwise it was for free. And the rest of the time she had to just live off her wits or her savings. And I wanted to get across to readers the sheer difficulty of living with a disability and the expense of that. And so um, she had to rely on her writing to bring the money in, but that has to feed her and clothe her and keep her housed um, for years. So she was always incredibly broke and relied upon, for a lot of the time, people like Ivor Indic, who was editing Heat, who she'd write a story. I mean, she'd think, oh, I've got nothing to eat, I've got no money. So over three days would write a story and send it off to Heat and she'd get $1,000 in a bank account. Oh, I'm right, I'm set, and off she'd go again. Extraordinary. How long have you been working on this book from the, you know, the moment that you decided to write it and all, all the years in the archive? It was three years start to finish, three years from the beginning till when it was published. So, I think that's pretty good. That's really very, you're a hard worker. I am, but see, once you once I got in the archive, I would just where else would you want to be? It was this story was unfolding. So I sort of spent about nine, ten months, I think, five days a week. Sometimes I'd go in on a Saturday morning and you do you do eight-hour stints in this archive, and then of course going back many times to check. Then there was a bit of a shutdown because of COVID. And so I got to arrange things and, and have some time to, to to plot my structure and see where I was going. Then I got to go and do road trips everywhere to go and meet people up and down the coast and when you could go across borders into Queensland and things like that, and then back into the archive. And then we got the the full shutdown. And so for me, who didn't have to homeschool kids and who had an office to work in, it was a godsend. And so I simply just wrote day and night really and I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't want to talk to anybody else. It was fine. (laughs) It's probably almost time for us to stop talking. But, you know, is she still enigmatic to you? I mean, you've got the enigmatic Gillian Mears. I got a lovely email from Don Anderson the other night saying nice things about the book and then he says, but I think what you've done is you've proved the irrelevance of your your subtitle. And I said, yes, she was never enigmatic to me, but it's called the marketing department. You couldn't hardly say, you know, the contradictory Gillian Mears. I had to put Gillian Mears in the title, but I really wanted it to be leaping into waterfalls as this idea of jumping into the intensity of risk and and how important it was in her life. Um, So I needed an, an adjective, but... You know, what do you do? So, I mean, in one sense she is enigmatic because her contradictory impulses and she lived a life that many of us couldn't quite get our heads around. Um, And in a sense she's still enigmatic to me because there's areas I don't quite understand. It's what you say when you say, you know, this wasn't what I would recommend or something. You think, well, you know, this isn't what I would do. And yet um, certainly I do strip away some of the enigma in the book, which arguably is the role of a biographer. Well, you've done it brilliantly. I mean, how different do you think it would have been if if you'd written like her, I suppose, without thought of anybody's view and anybody's feelings oh, and yeah. anybody's permissions? But I could never have done that. Um, it's I'm just an ethical sort of person and I just think people have a right to their lives and 
and there's only so much trauma you can keep on inflicting onto some people. So, yes, there's things in this book that I haven't told. Some of them are absolutely not my stories to tell. Some of them I could have told, but it wouldn't have advanced your understanding of Gillian's life or her work. Um, they're just gossipy things. And really, I think by the time you get to my age and things, you just think you don't really need the gossipy things. You need the really interesting things about this very complex person and this great life she led, this big life, even though it was only 51 years. She did write her own gravestone, didn't she? She did. She edited it three times and she had it delivered in the April, nearly two years before she died, popped it in the shed, thought she had a little bit more work to do. But, yes, again, what I said earlier, control. She wanted control and what we ended up with was a a woman who had very little control over her body. This disease racked her body. So she sought control where she could and it was really important to her. What about your own emotions? How did how did your emotions go? Yes, you know, there was times I was extremely sad when I first began this book. I was quite emotional thinking, oh, I'm not sure if I can do this. There were many times in the archive when I was very dark. I actually really spiralled down into a lot of Gillian's darkness um, and I had to escape sometimes. I just had to get away um, because there was experiences she was having which were so foreign to me, but she would say things like, so, biographer, I really want you to pay attention to these because it's really important. So you couldn't shut them out. Um, and there was moments I just I wanted to dance with her and I wanted to say to her, oh, it's all right. You don't have to beat yourself up so much. And I loved getting to know her. I wish she was around now. Um, I wouldn't want to be too close, but I would like to to know her more. I I think I know her pretty well, but I would like to know her in life more. Um, And I really cared. I really care about her. I respect her. And the book is written partly in honour of her life and her writing. Mm. And I structured it in such a way, you know, her favourite combination was four times four. And so I structured it in four parts with four chapters, just little things to say, I really respect what you were doing with your life and your writing and here you are. This so it's a bit of a nod to the magic and the talisman. A nod to the magic. It's just a little bit, which is harmless but also gives me structure. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with structure. Nothing wrong with structure. <laughs> well, I think that Christine is going to tell us to stop talking any minute. Christine, where are you? Here I am. Here I am. And I think that really my position now is to just say thank you so much, Ramona, for asking the questions that we all wanted the answers to. I appreciate the research that you have taken. I know that you were friends with Gillian. And just to hear this story tonight from you, Bernadette, and from you, Ramona, I think has been quite extraordinary. I imagine if we're sitting there in that reading shop at the back there, wedged as we would be between the poetry and the self-help, the people would be applauding your work, Bernadette, and thanking you for being here with us tonight. I wish that you could hear how enchanted we all were with this conversation. To all of you out there, stay well, keep reading, and thank you so much for joining us. Good night, everyone. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced 
on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and the sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>